exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. You're listening to the Impact 88.9 here on WDBM East Lansing. Uh, Tonight we have, well, exposure, and here's Friday Night Insight. I'm your host, Melissa Horst. Um, Tonight lined up, we have some great information coming your way. Russ White will be interviewing Steve Eskeith, the dean of the forthcoming Residential College of Arts and Humanities. We also have an interview with Dr. Sarah Bood, as well as coming up right now, we'll have Russ White interviewing Brian Wynn, Brian Magento, and Carrie Heater of the Department of Telecommunications, and they will give us a little bit of information about the Gel Lab and what that is. But first, here's some information. Uh, the MSU powwow will be taking place this Saturday and Sunday um, at the Jenison Field House. Doors open at 10 a.m., and it's recommended that you bring your student IDs with you. Um, it looks like uh, the grand entry will be taking place on Saturday, um, 1 p.m. and 6 p.m., and basically the grand entry is when all the dancers come in. And again, on Sunday at noon and it's a good opportunity there's going to be food music um, drummers dancing uh, as well as some vendors there so it's a the event's actually put on by NASA which is the Native American Indigenous Student Organization and that'll be taking place this weekend Saturday and Sunday at the Jenison Field House. Coming up right now we've got MSU Today here's Russ White with the Department of Telecommunications here on your Impact 88.9 FM. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Today I'm at MSU's Gel Lab. I'm visiting with Brian Wynn, Brian McGurko, and Carrie Heater. All three are on the faculty in MSU's Department of Telecommunication, Information Studies, and Media. Wynn and McGurko co-direct the Gel Lab, and Heater is a principal investigator in the lab. They are all three involved in MSU's new Serious Games initiative as well. Brian Wynn, what is the Gel Lab? The Gel Lab is the Games for Entertainment and Learning Lab. It started in, I think, fall of 2005. It's an association of faculty, graduate students, undergraduate students, all working on research and development projects surrounding video games. So expound on that a little bit more. Games for entertainment and learning, how are they different maybe from games for enjoyment, like a Madden 07 or something? Well, I mean, we do look at at traditional video games, games that you play for purely entertainment purposes, but uh, one of our major thrusts is the games for learning component, so looking at using games for purposes other than just purely entertainment. So games that are still fun to play, but you get something out of them beyond just an enjoyable experience. I guess that's the distinction, too, right? Every game has to be fun. I didn't think about that. Nobody's going to play a boring game. So is the idea to, I guess, get people to learn as well as be entertained or while they're entertained through video games, correct? Well, certainly, yeah. Video games are, you know, as a as a medium, have grown in importance in our society. People go to play games um, for enjoyment, of course. They, they have qualities that, that attract people, Um uh, you know, and they're a very engaging, interactive experience. So we can use them for purposes other than just entertainment. We can we can harness that interactive nature and use it for purposes of learning, for example. So this is we look at games that are already out there as as well as create some. Definitely, yeah. We you know we we analyze games um, as well as create our own games. You know, we've got a number of of funded projects um, that we're working on serious games. So serious games are, are how we sort of designate uh, the you know sort of the, the state of the art term for games for learning games for health, you know basically taking any sort of game and using it for purposes other than just entertainment. 
So can you give me one example of a game you've either either analyzed or developed that you would call a, a game that was for learning? Well, one of the projects that we're working on now is basically taking uh, a series of games that exercise different cognitive functions. So, you know, the idea is as you age, uh, you lose some of your cognitive abilities. Um, so with games, it allows you to have new experiences, allows you to target certain cognitive um, functions and exercise them just like you would go to the gym and exercise certain muscle groups and so forth. So that's, that's an idea of, of fun games that you would play um, that have a very serious purpose. So summarize for me again sort of the, the mission of the gel lab or why it exists. The Gel Lab exists um, basically as a as a home for uh, faculty and graduate students doing work in the area of games. So uh, any sort of project related to um, serious games, educational games, and so forth um, going on runs through the Gel Lab. Well, Brian, let's segue to you now because part of what we have here too in the Gel Lab and telecom is the video game design specialization, right? I mean, tell us what that is. Um, so the video game specialization here is an opportunity for students in uh, the telecom department, in the computer science department, and in the studio art department, all to take classes as a cohort together. There's four classes in which they kind of specialize their, their major. So they're all taking their major course of study, but um, focusing it on game design development. And then to what kind of jobs does this lead, hopefully? Well, hopefully it either leads to jobs that are actually in the game industry or the simulation industry, um, or it just better prepares them for um, uh, pursuing uh, jobs within their specific course of study. And how is it unfolding? I guess the first class will graduate this uh, spring, but how is it going so far? All right, it's going great. Um, we had uh, about 15 students in the 3D um, games course last semester. Um, we had three uh, quality games come out of that course. Um, students had roughly four to five students in each teams. Um, and this semester they're working in a little bit larger teams on a whole semester long project in the uh, kind of senior design project course that is the, the end of the game specialization. Um, they serve outside clients so there's actually two teams of uh, about eight or seven um, and there are outside clients that the students have to contact, um, work with, and um, develop a product for, a game, a specifically a game, obviously. So you've kind of said it, but s sum up the mission, if, you, if there is one, of the program. Well, the mission is to give students the opportunity to have a more in-depth experience in their, in their specific major, whether it be studio art, computer science, or telecom, in something that they're passionate about, like video games. Carrie Heater is another member of the Gel Lab team and is involved in MSU's initiative to establish a course of study inside a master's degree in telecommunication information studies and media that focuses on serious games. Carrie, tell us more, please. Well, everybody knows that games are fun, uh, at least good games are fun, but games are also powerful, and games impact the player. And uh, Serious Games is about games and the power of games beyond just fun. So elaborate a little bit on what a serious game is you started to. I was exploring the Nobel Peace Prize site, and I encountered a game by the American Red Cross called the Prisoner of War Game. And... This is an example of how playing the Geneva Convention is completely different than reading the Con Geneva Convention. 
So I had never actually read it before. I assumed that it was a 280-page document with many footnotes. And I was shocked as I got to, right before you play the game, you have the opportunity to read it. It's a, a couple of paragraphs. Okay, so that was a surprise. And, and I thought, okay, well, now I've got it. Then I went into the game. It's a very short game. And initially, you evaluate eight individuals to determine whether or not they should be granted prisoner of war status, which I never realized was a, a, a good thing to be granted if you're, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the realm of, well, if, you, if you're going to be imprisoned, you'd rather, anyway. So, so, so you apply what you've read, and, and it brings out nuances that hadn't occurred to you in simply reading it, because it brings out individual cases, and you think, oh, okay, now I understand it more deeply. Then they move you into running a prisoner of war camp, and that simply means responding to requests from prisoners, from the press, and from, from, from uh, countries and publics applying the Geneva Convention, and that too brings out nuances. And I realized after, after playing that 10-minute game that I had a completely different and deeper understanding of it than I had ever had. And that's just an example of how games impact the player in different ways, in, in role-play games and in different things. And, and it's an area that's just fascinating. Right, because it's not well understood yet. It's 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 got some new territory in there. What what is the impact of engagement of it of it of of attention of 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 the play factor and how does knowledge interplay? When people play fun games right now, they learn. They just don't learn things that actually matter, you know. And how else does it affect us? Anyway, so we are starting a serious game design master's program course of study, and um, serious games are even harder to make than fun games because it brings together, you, you, you want accurate and meaningful content, you need, you need the purposes to be there. There's all sorts of different theories. There's theories of learning, as you might understand, there's psychological theories, um, perception, um, persuasion, human-computer interac interaction, consumer behavior. So, so you need to not just know everything you need to know to design a good game, but you need all these other kinds of things, and you need research to make it better and that kind of thing. So Michigan State University has many, many faculty working in this area to understand it better, to apply the power of it, to create games in a, in a range of different areas. And we're looking for students who want to change the world with us, who want to explore this area. We're looking for students from a wide variety of backgrounds with a bachelor's degree in, could be computer science, could be art, but it could also be epidemiology or environmental science, in other words, content experts, or psychology or education. In other words, we want to get together people who are as fascinated by this as we are. And we are also bringing together industry advisors so that we're connected with the jobs and what, what, what the real world wants. And we're, we're, we, we will bring people to the point where, where we're exploring this space together. We're teaching you how to make serious games, how to understand the theory of it, how to do research, and, and, and doing many, many projects to come out and enter this area with, with, with a great background. So we, we are re recruiting now. It's just starting up. Um, the deadline for application is early April. And the very first batch of students will begin with us in fall. We have 20 faculty members from 11 departments, including museum studies and, and, and education and, and telecommunication information studies and media. So it will be very interdisciplinary. And the most important thing that you would have coming into this is a passionate interest. And, and, and the faculty are also fascinated by this. And, and our growing number of people from industry are, are eager for people to come. They, they want to um, uh, help teach. They, they, they're going to do mini lectures. They're going to offer internships and things like that. And so together we will explore this space and change the world. So it will be, you, you will get 
very special attention. You, we will care about you. We will work with you. You will be with faculty from the gel lab who are creating things like cognitive games, games for nutrition education, um, games, uh, any, is it fa fascinating questions, uh, learning with the world how to make these, what impact they have. So how do people get more information about MSU's Serious Games initiative? You can start with the website, with it, which is Serious Games, that's one word, dot msu dot edu, or you can simply email me. I'm, I'm the co-champion of this program of study, heater, H-E-E-T-E-R, at msu dot edu. Is there anything you'd like to add, Carrie? The Serious Game Design course of study aims at the heart of serious game design. So we go right at the center of game design, theory, and content. In our program, in, in the course of study, we will give everyone the common ground of how to design serious games, the, some of the uh, pieces of theories and things. We will help you develop an area of specialization in, in these 11 different departments. You, you may um, focus on, on your, your, your elective credits in computer science so, so that you really develop that, or, or in, in education and things like that, so, so that you're, we'll help you target where you're trying to go in industry, what you want to do. And, and you're right, you, you come here because you see the power and the fun of games and you want to do more. Maybe you, maybe you even have an undergraduate specialization completed in game design. And you think, what's next? Do I want to go to electronic arts and, 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 and just, just work on huge teams of, of fun games? Or do I, or, or do I want to take this and, and, and do even more in the world? Do I, do, I, do I want to make people more aware of what they can do to help the environment? Um, do I want to change the nature of fourth grade so that you win fourth grade instead of instead of um, sitting in a classroom all the time? I mean, th this this is a an emerging tool. It's a powerful tool, and together with the faculty here and the industry advisors, we're looking for interesting, talented people to students to join us in in this endeavor and then to go out and, and change the world. That's Carrie Heater from MSU's Department of Telecommunication, Information Studies, and Media the Gel Lab, and the forthcoming Serious Games course of study inside the master's program in the department. You also heard from assistant professors Brian Wynn and Brian McGurko, who are also involved in the Gel Lab and Serious Games course of study. For more information on the Games for Entertainment and Learning Lab on the web, you can visit gel, that's G-E-L, gel.msu.edu, and for more information on the Serious Games Initiative, that site is SeriousGames, one word, SeriousGames.msu.edu. And for more MSU Today, please visit us on the web at msutoday.com. I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio from Michigan State University. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Saturday nights from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., tune into the cultural vibe to hear the best in both local and national hip-hop, plus live mixing on the ones and twos. Only on Impact Primetime. 
You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Dr. Sarah Abood is coordinator for student programs in MSU's College of Veterinary Medicine and an assistant professor in the Small Animal Teaching Hospital. Her specialty is small animal nutrition. That mostly means dogs and cats. And what they eat, when the, what they're eating when they're healthy, and how I help their, I also help their owners um, manage problems when they're not so healthy. When they're sick in the hospital, I consult with our veterinarians here on staff and the students, and I'm teaching students about nutrition for pets. Welcome to MSU Today, Dr. Abood. So what are some of the issues in pet nutrition today? One of the biggest issues in pet nutrition these days is obesity. Um, depending on who you read, there are anywhere from 20 to 40 percent of dogs and cats in the United States that are considered overweight or obese. That's a major nutrition problem. Other nutrition problems are associated typically with animals that have chronic diseases. So for conditions such as diabetes, chronic renal failure, or cancer, we have diets or management therapies that we attempt to use to help animals through the acute phase when when something's really flaring up or the chronic phase of the disease process. Do obese dogs tend to be owned by obese people? There there are um, some indirect sorts of pieces of information that we have that indicate that uh, overweight dogs and cats tend to be owned by overweight people. Um, So some of it is our sedentary lifestyles. Although There are lots of people who are very active. Um, There are millions of dogs and cats, and most of them spend time indoors, especially in cold winter months, and most of their owners are exposed to a lot of easy, cheap food. You know, fast food restaurants are available for everyone, and so people's busy lifestyles, eating on the go, tend to contribute to less exercise for their pets. So what advice do you have for pet owners who think they have an overweight dog or cat? For a lot of the pet owners that I see who are um, clients of our teaching hospital, um, by the time they get to me, they've heard lots of advice from their their own veterinarian. And so the advice is the same, but people don't always want to follow it. And it is pretty basic. You know, ingest fewer calories than you burn or burn more calories um, to try to lose weight. So for our pets, what can we do? I mean, as, as animal owners, we're in control of the food that they eat and the exercise that they get. So we need to do simple things like use a measuring cup to portion out their food. If we're free choice feeding them, if we're we're filling up the food bowl and we're not really understanding how many calories that they need, they're at more risk for obesity, especially if they're a, a breed of dog or cat that's more prone to obesity. And you might ask, well, what are some of those breeds? And actually more and more, there are a lot of them, but, um, some of the breeds are Labradors, Golden Retrievers, and Beagles. And, and it won't surprise you that those are some of the most popular breeds. So people have popular pets. People tend to overfeed themselves, not exercise as much. We tend to do that with our favorite pets. Uh, those are some breeds that over time have become genetically predisposed to obesity. So, so portioning out their food, understanding for their body weight and their age and their activity level, how many calories actually do they need a day? 
most owners would be very surprised to realize that their pets need very little in terms of volume of food. And that's because the pet food companies have taken all the work out of it for us. You know, so, so foods are very energy dense and foods that are marketed as complete and balanced for a young growing animal or an adult have all that that animal needs. We don't really need to supplement anything else. And when we come along and, and add in lots of commercial treats and snacks or people food right from the table or from the fridge or from the counter, we're, we're adding calories and we don't even often know how much. So minimizing treats or choosing low calorie, no calorie kinds of treats is, is always something that pet owners can talk to their veterinarians about. And the question they should ask is, how can I feed low-calorie, no-calorie treats? What, what are some good recommendations? People might be surprised to know that depending on the size of the dog treat, commercial dog treats can range anywhere from 10 calories apiece to over 300 calories apiece. And if you're a dog that only weighs 20 or 40 pounds, a couple of you know, 40 or 50 calorie treats can really add up over time. So that lends itself to this overweight or this obese condition. Cat treats, on the other hand, no matter who's making them, always tend to be in between two to four calories a piece because cats have about the same mouth structure, mouth size, and, and so the, the calorie or the kibble size of the treat, the shape of the treat, does not need to be big for a big cat versus a small cat. Measuring the food, reducing calories in the treats that people give, and portioning those out, and then increasing exercise. Those are um, exercise or activity. Those are the three big things that folks can do to maintain a good weight in their pet. And, and how do you do that in the winter months? Sometimes people say, well, my, my dog or my cat, they've never been a big exerciser, right? It's, and so you, you stop thinking about it as exercise, like, oh, gosh, I've got to walk the dog for half a mile out in the cold weather. You think more about it in terms of I'm going to increase their activity. How could I do that? For animals in which I'm actually trying to help them lose a little bit of weight, I'll coach the owner on thinking about, let's put the calories in different places around the house so the animal actually has to work for their food. So stop putting it all in the bowl and making it available to them all the time. You know, if they've got stairs in the house, you can throw some up the stairs or down the stairs and let the animal go after it. Or if you're trying to teach a dog some obedience tricks or just good manners, always using a piece of their food, not an extra commercial treat, but kibble from their bowl. Use that as the treat to teach them to sit, stay, come, down, shake a paw, that kind of stuff. A little bit harder to do in cats to actually get them to exercise. So looking at all the kinds of toys that people use to um, keep cats stimulated is, is a, a thing that people can focus on. You know, one of the activities that people can do is go to the store or look at websites, see what things are available. Um, laser lights that you can flash on the wall, long fishing poles with little feathers hanging off of them. Lots of cats love those kinds of things to play. Can you summarize all that advice then, please, Dr. Aboud? Some of the key things that owners can do to help keep their animals lean are to measure out an exact amount of food for the animal each day and pay attention to the amount of treats so that they're limited and also pay attention to making sure that the treats that are given don't have a high number of calories. Another thing that people can do is look for ways to increase their pet's activity on a daily basis. 
Um, if, if that's not with toys, then it maybe it's just with movement. Um, taking the animals outside on a leash to go to the bathroom, be it a dog. Um, some cats like to be walked if they've got a harness on as opposed to a collar around their neck. Uh, if owners don't know, then they can they can try to borrow a, a harness, maybe from their veterinarian or a leash from their veterinarian, take it home for a few days, see if it'll work. How do you know how much exercise or activity your pet needs? We start with, we start, you know, to try to help owners nail down, well, how much does my animal need? We start with trying to figure out, first of all, for an animal of their size, what's a what's their basic resting energy needs? And then through a thorough diet history, we find out where are all the calories coming from. And we try to match that up. And and if there are way more calories than what the animal would need and the animal's overweight, we know that we have to start with decreasing where all the calories come from. But at the same time, we, we ask the owner not only to keep a food diary, but we ask them to keep an exercise diary or an activity diary. And if we find out the animal's just not even getting five or ten minutes of exercise or activity today, we ask the owner to try to ramp that up by a minute or two. So typical 40 or 50 pound dogs, um, they, they should be walked on a regular basis, once or twice a day. Um, for some people, if they have a very small space in which they can walk, that might mean walking the same space, perhaps around the yard several times. Um, for other people who have access to a half a mile walk or a mile walk, um, that's, that's reasonable. But if you find even with that kind of regular exercise on board, the animal's still not losing any weight, it's time to revisit the veterinarian and talk again about where are all the calories coming from. Should we actually change the food? Should we actually cut out commercial pet treats and move to stuff like fruits and vegetables? Dr. Abood, what about tips for managing your pet's health and well-being in the cold weather? Some good things that are, that are just basic common sense when we take care of our pets in cold weather is to make sure that they're not going outside with wet paws and wet fur. And, and if they have been out on a walk and they're coming back in and, and their feet are wet, to make sure that they're dried thoroughly. Sometimes people like to put boots on their, their pet's paws when they go out for walks. Um, and, and many veterinarians will recommend this, especially if the individual animal is prone to getting their paw pads um, broken open or frozen or, or if they have sensitive paw pads and sensitive fur. Um, many many dogs do really well with um, an outside sort of a sweater or or some covering, but if they're a heavy coated animal, they they don't need that. So, it's paying attention to making sure that if animals do enjoy being outside, they always have some kind of shelter. Uh, for for some dogs, that might be a an actual dog house or um, I want to say a lean to, you know, s- something that is partially open partially closed but but even if there's some straw on the floor or a blanket you know somewhere where they could generate some warmth warmth would be important and then also the other thing is just the amount of time so there's a general recommendation for people that if they're outside with their pets and they're starting to get cold their extremities are cold they know they need to move inside their pets do too if they start to shiver their pets are probably cold uh, it's it's that same sort of common sense of like um, you're a parent and you have a small ch- uh, an infant, right? You know what what kind of what kind of blankets, what kind of exposure should you have for your infant? Well, if if you're hot or you're cold, the infant should be appropriately covered too. So, if I had to, if I had to wrap that up, I'd say um, that making sure you know common sense wise, it's making sure that your animals are not exposed to cold elements for prolonged periods of time 
just like we just like we would go out in the cold weather with appropriate covering um, we may need to do that for dogs especially some small dogs be that sweaters or, or boots and we want to make sure that if they're out and they're exposed to wet elements in any way slush or rain or snow that when they come in they're thoroughly dried the other thing to think about is animals that stay inside during cold weather we often crank up the heat in our homes and we want to make sure that um, cats that like to cats and small dogs that like to be near heat vents and, and heat sources um, have appropriate padding so that they're not burning themselves um, we want to make sure that if we're leaving home for a while um, that we are turning the heat to an appropriate level. It can be turned down so that your pipes don't freeze, but it, it doesn't have to be cranked up just for animals. I mean, they have a fur, they have a fur covering for a reason. So they, they do well with the lower heat temperatures in the house. But um, anytime, well, I should, I should, one other thing I want to say is just like in the summer months, our pets, whether they're outdoors or indoors, need fresh water sources all the time. So thinking about changing a fresh water source daily even if the pet stays indoors all the time in the winter, is an important management tool, you know, important way to take care of our pets and keep them healthy. That's Dr. Sarah Abood, coordinator for student programs in Michigan State University's College of Veterinary Medicine and an assistant professor in the Small Animal Teaching Hospital at MSU. Her specialty is small animal nutrition. For more information on the web, you can visit www.cvm. .msu.edu. And for more MSU Today, visit us on the web at msutoday.com. For MSU Today on Impact Radio, I'm Russ White. You're listening to Friday Night Insight. I'm your host, Melissa Horst. Some news at the Capitol. Uh, the uh, Governor Granholm just proposed her new sales tax. It's actually an addition to the current sales tax called the two-penny plan. Uh, what this tax would do is a 2% tax on services. So taxes would no longer just be on goods anymore. Uh, the plan excludes government purchases, health care, and educational services, as well as college sports events. However, professional sports events would be taxed. The tax would also cover things like haircuts, lawn mowing services, legal and accounting services, and professional entertainment. The two-penny plan is expected to bring in $1.47 billion in revenue, which helps uh, cover the losses of the single business tax, which was expired this past December. Uh, the Republican Party is skeptical to the proposed tax services. Some Republicans cite that before this tax plan can be considered, the state should first focus on restructuring the government, as well as the fact that this plan will affect businesses more who regularly use legal and accounting services. Some critics also cite that the two-penny plan um, will drive businesses uh, to other states without a uh, service tax. The governor ta wants this tax to be effective June 1st so the state can forestall a cut in school aid um, and otherwise help address an $800 million current year deficit. Um, but it remains to be seen how this tax is going to take place because this will be facing the state legislature. Uh, coming up next on Friday Night Insight, we've got Russ White with an interview with Steve Askeith, who's the dean of the forthcoming Residential College of Arts and Humanities here on your Impact 88.9 FM. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Today I'm visiting with Steve Esquith, who's the dean of MSU's forthcoming Residential College in the Arts and Humanities. It's called the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities. And what that means is two things. 
One, a residential college is a place where students have their classes. It's where they have their rooms, where they live, where they eat. It has its own dining facilities. And also where the faculty have their offices and where they have their classrooms and workshops and, and seminar rooms and public performing spaces. It's an all-purpose facility for living and learning. That's the residence part of the residential college. The arts and humanities part is also inclusive. What it means is that students will be studying the visual and performing arts. They'll be studying history. They'll be studying various cultures and have immersion activities in world languages. They'll be debating ethical issues that cut across cultures and cut across time. They'll be involved in their own performances. They'll be involved in their own gallery exhibitions. So it'll be both a place where they study and where they present their own work and creative activities uh, to other people. It'll also be open to the rest of the university. It won't be a cocoon. It won't be a, a, uh, an insular active, uh, program. It'll be a place that, where the, the doors swing both ways and the windows are always open. Uh, we want to invite community partners. We want to invite other programs and departments, students who are not majors in the residential college. So we see a lot of opportunities for partnering, for collaborating, and for generating new activities in the arts and humanities. People may be familiar with existing residential colleges at MSU. James Madison and Lyman Briggs are very well known. Similar or, or compare? Talk about how they're the same or different. Mm -hmm. Well, there, there's an important similarity that has to do with what I said originally about their residential living and learning function. Uh, like Lyman Briggs and James Madison, this is a place where all of those activities go on under one roof. They're different from Lyman Briggs and James Madison in two respects. One in terms of the content, where Briggs is mostly in the natural sciences and Madison is in the policy sciences. We're working on the right side of the brain, if you will. <laughs> and they're also different in, we're also different in the sense that our curriculum is structured somewhat differently. Uh, in Madison, there are several majors within the college, and students can dual major within Madison College, uh, but there's no single James Madison major. In Lyman Briggs, most students have joint majors. They have a major within uh, a regular department, and then they, if they so choose, can have a Briggs major in um, the sociology of science, or what used to be called science and technology studies. Our approach is to have one major within the college. So if you're in the residential college, that's the box you check for your major if you're applying to MSU. And within that major, there's a core curriculum, uh, both in the first year, students take five courses uh, that are similar, and then in the second year and the third year, there's also a structured curriculum for uh, all students. On the that's the foundation, and then from that foundation, students branch off. Uh, we call them elective pathways, and it's through those pathways that students can then choose an additional major. They can choose a specialization, an interdisciplinary specialization, or they can choose a minor. We've been very uh, happy with the speed with which 
music and theater and art and art history have created or are in the process of creating new minors for our students who want as their elective pathway, pathway to work in those other programs. So we have a core curriculum, one major, and then five or six elective pathways that connect students to these other programs on campus. You might say it's a combination of the Madison model and the Briggs model. Right? We have one major unlike the four or five majors in Madison, but uh, we have a core curriculum as Madison does which extends up beyond the first year. Like Briggs, we're connected to other programs in a very systematic way through our elective pathways, um, but we, uh, we have only one major rather than the multiple majors that Briggs students would have. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White visiting with Steve Esquith, who is the dean of MSU's new coming, not quite online, residential college in the arts and humanities. And I'm curious, Steve, take us back a little bit. How did MSU see the need for this and, and sort of talk about its its place in sort of modern education? Because isn't the liberal arts degree sort of on its way back? But I guess a little bit about how this fits in with boldness by design and just you know the the world grant and those kinds of things right i think that that you're right there is a uh, a sense in which liberal education and the collegiate experience is coming back students undergraduate students who pay uh, you know tuition at msu are concerned about you know what kinds of opportunities do we have at MSU for exciting new undergraduate initiatives boldness by design is committed at, uh, at the very top of the list of its commitments to enhancing the undergraduate student experience. The, uh, the new residential college, I think, is the, the leading edge of that enhancement of the, new, of the undergraduate experience at MSU. And our goal is to, uh, is to be a kind of catalyst for undergraduate education across the board. We'll be collaborating with the other residential colleges in a variety of different programs that have already uh, received external funding from the Association of American Colleges and Universities. We'll col be collaborating, as I said, with music and art and theater uh, and new degree programs. Where did this all come from? I think it came from, one, the students' desire to see the liberal arts be on a par with the natural sciences and the social sciences, and also the vision of President Simon, who was the one who said, you know, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to find a way to provide our undergraduate students who are interested in the performing arts and visual arts and history in ethics and literature and creative writing to have the same kind of residential uh, living learning experience. We know that that's where students learn best, where they have contact with faculty, where they have small classes, where they have opportunities to generate new ideas. Cognitive scientists have told us that you remember and you understand best when you generate ideas. And the only way for students to be generating ideas and testing out their own uh, views is in a, a context in which there is that kind of interaction with faculty and those kinds of opportunities for creative and uh, creative activity by students. Let's talk some nuts and bolts. Where will it be? 
uh, sort of how many students are you looking to have in the program? You're, I assume you're admitting some now hiring faculty. Just sort of an update. Uh-huh. Well, that's a good question. It, uh, it's right between the Snyder Residence Hall and the Phillips Residence Hall, which is over on the east side of campus. Uh, just off of Bogue Street. That, those two residence halls are being remodeled this year, so students weren't living in the residence halls, so we'll have spanking new dorm rooms, as they used to call them. Uh, and between the two dorm rooms is the, the new structure, which goes down several floors and goes up three floors. It has a large multi-purpose performing space. It has um, music practice rooms. It has creative arts workshops. It has a gallery overlooking a two-story uh, atrium where the dining facility will be. We want the we want and we believe the college will be a a vibrant place. Uh, we're in the process now of both admitting students and hiring faculty. Uh, the admissions office has been very aggressive in terms of getting the word out and and working with us, as have the admissions officers in Lyman Briggs and James Madison. Uh, we have over 150 applications to the college at this point, and the admissions office has processed approximately 100 admissions. So now the, uh, the next step is to kind of move those folks who've been admitted uh, here to MSU uh, and have them participate in the the early orientation program in the summer, build their major, and come in the fall. Our goal is to have 125 to 150 new students here in the fall. A few of those will be transfer students, but the majority, the vast majority, will be students new to MSU. The faculty is being hired uh, at this moment as well. We have faculty in history, faculty in art, faculty in world languages, faculty in uh, the study of culture and anthropology and sociology and we're working with art and music and theater again uh, to hire people in those areas who would uh, participate both in the college and in those departments. We also have a grant from the uh, MSU Graduate School to hire uh, 10 graduate fellows, doctoral students, who will work as mentors and tutors with, with undergraduates in the program. Uh, these are graduate students in digital writing and rhetoric, graduate students in history, graduate students in uh, French, classics, Italian, and uh, less commonly taught languages. And their role will be not to uh, work as teaching assistants in large lecture courses. All our classes will be taught by faculty. But these graduate students who've expressed a particular interest in working with undergraduates in a residential setting, will work as mentors in a creative workshop, say a poetry workshop, or tutors in a world language program. Uh, if students are interested in a, a study abroad program and a graduate student has a, a special expertise in that uh, world culture or the uh, language that the study abroad program will stress, the graduate student will be a co-leader in the study abroad program. We also have what we call study away programs, which uh, take students off campus but not uh, to other countries, working in uh, neighborhoods in Lansing, in rural communities in this area, in Detroit, in Chicago, with neighborhood theater groups, with neighborhood uh, community uh, organizations, 
and graduate students oftentimes have a, a special expertise in those areas. Uh, our goal is to to bridge the gap between graduate and undergraduate education through these special fellowships that the, the graduate school has so generously uh, provided to the college. If someone listening to us is intrigued about MSU's College of Residential College for Arts and Humanities, what's the best way for them to get some more information? Uh, while the college isn't uh, online in the sense of being open for business today, it is online. Uh, we have a website, www.rcah.msu.edu, or they can email us directly, uh, rcah at msu.edu. Uh, the website has a webcam, which will take them through the building as it's being sort of constructed. It also has a fairly detailed description of the core curriculum, the first-year uh, classes, including a first-year seminar that all students will take with a faculty instructor. instructor. And um, either through the website, where they can click to an email connection or directly you know, by the email address that I've given you, uh, they can get in touch with us, make an appointment, come in, talk to. We have faculty and advisors already here on staff, talk to them about the program. We have a big uh, inaugural event we're planning for our first year. The Snyder and Phillips dormitories will be open for business in August, August 15th, uh, in fall 2007. In January 2008 will be the gala uh, inaugural opening uh, for the uh, uh, college uh, facilities in that complex. And we're working with the Wharton Center and the School of Music and Art and Theater to bring in some top-notch talent and engage the students in uh, in the process too. So we want the inaugural to have student involvement. That's why we're not going to perform it for students uh, in August, but we're going to perform it with students in January. And our headliner will probably be uh, members of the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater, who will be with us here in Wharton, at Wharton in January, and will be coming over to the Residential College to lead us in, uh, in an inaugural uh, uh, event. Dean Esquith, uh, anything important we've left out or just some final thoughts you want to leave listeners on the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities? Right. I think there is a, an important uh, question that needs to be addressed, and that is career development for students. Where, where does a degree in the residential college in the arts and humanities point? What are the, the opportunities? What are the things that are, are, uh, are out there as future career choices, uh, job prospects, employment? Uh, I think that there are three ways in which the, uh, the college prepares students. And all three of these ways, to me, uh, are important for our region, for our state, uh, and for the, the global economy that we participate in. So I, I think we're, we're opening a new door for students that is important both for them and for the rest of the, the community that within which we live. Those three areas I would describe 
in the following way. One is many of the students who come through this program will be prepared, very well prepared, for future academic work, both at the university level, in research institutions, and at the K through 12 level in teaching capacities uh, in the areas of uh, art and culture, history, world languages. We, we believe and, uh, and we think uh, students will, will sense that this is, this is true, that the direction of those academic areas uh, is moving towards greater interdisciplinary collaboration, uh, greater awareness of global connections. And so that the program for us is a program that is in close harmony with the direction of the very best graduate programs at MSU and elsewhere. So this is, this is a program that offers students a, uh, a view and a, a, uh, an entry point into the very best work that's being done in graduate programs in the arts and humanities. A second group of students, I think, will be attracted to the program are students who, let's just say, uh, are very much committed to the to the collective or the public good. These are students who have been involved in outreach activities, in community service activities in high school, and want that to continue to be an important part of their education at the university. All of our students will take eight credits of civic engagement work, and that can include, that will include things like community service learning, but also things like uh, public art performances and, you know, community murals and creative writing programs and literacy projects in, in refugee projects within the city of Lansing. So I think students who are committed to activism in that sense, in a, in a very general sense, will find that this, this college is a good preparation for a career in those areas whether it's local or global or both. The third group of students, I think, are, are students, I referred to the right side of the brain before, are students who, are, uh, who find pleasure and uh, satisfaction in, in the moment, in the performing arts, whether they be the visual arts or installation arts or theater and dance in a more conventional sense. Um, Many of our students who come to MSU have had that kind of experience in high school, but for one reason or another, they've decided that majoring in those performance areas is not all that they want to do as college students, to really commit yourself to you know, piano performance or a choral ensemble major. Uh, is very time-consuming, and it has to be in order to achieve the kind of proficiency one needs to have a career in those areas. But many other students want to have that as part of their education and also major in other areas, major in social work, major in criminal justice, major in uh, a world language. And for those students, I think we provide that kind of blend of performance and other ac academic experiences so that they can go on possibly in in education but also working for a local community theater founding a new community theater company and being the manager of the company or helping to build a new museum in a you know in a small rural community or working in a major metropolitan area you know as a 
uh, arts and culture organizer. Uh, so we think that we provide those students with, um, with opportunities in terms of career. Let me use a metaphor to sort of end that uh, pitch. Uh, I think students in the arts and humanities uh, ought to be, ought to think of their life after college as rock climbing, not climbing a ladder, right? That there aren't too many career ladders left. And this isn't true just for the arts and humanities. It's true in the sciences, the natural sciences, and the social sciences. There aren't single career ladders where one starts at the bottom and simply climbs straight to the top. You need a kind of agility and a field of vision that's much broader and the kind of stamina that rock climbing takes. If you've done some rock climbing, you, you know it's exhausting. It's also very gratifying. And so our goal is to is to educate rock climbers in the arts and humanities, uh, people who will have that kind of exhilaration and spirit of, uh, of discovery as they pull up over the top. And, um, and we think that uh, the residential college is not just a college where you can enjoy your four years and then try to figure out what am I going to do for a living, but rather build the the strength and stamina and skills and agility uh, to pursue that uh, a future career as a rock climber. Well said, sir. Steve Esquith is Dean of Michigan State University's Residential College in the Arts and Humanities. And again, for a lot more information online, it's rcah.msu.edu. And I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. You're listening to Friday Night Insight. I'm your host, Melissa Horse. Black History Month is this month. It was actually established in 1976 by the Association for the Study of Afro-American Life. Black History Month is actually an extension of Black History Week, established in 1926 by Carter G. Woodson. Um, Black History Month provides a showcase of notable uh, African Americans throughout history, including George Washington Carver, Martin Luther King, uh, Billie Holiday. There's also some firsts, such as Thomas L. Jennings was the first African-American to receive a patent in 1821. It was a patent for a dry cleaning process. Um, on the female side, Judy W. Reed was the first African-American woman to receive a patent in 1884 for a hand-operated uh, machine used to knead and roll dough. Um, to find out more information about uh, Black History Month, you can check out www.biography.com slash black history. There's also some events taking place around campus. A multicultural here Hall of Fame case competition will be taking place Wednesday, February 21st. Um, the theme is Passing the Torch of Justice. It'll be taking place from 6 to 8 p.m. in N100 of the North Business College Complex. Teams of MSU students will argue their case for 10 minutes for their choice of a multicultural leader who has impacted the world. Um, there's also an exhibit taking place at the MSU Museum. Uh, the title is Lest We Forget the Triumph Over Slavery. Uh, this is an internationally touring exhibit that examines the cultural, political, and economic and social practices of American slavery. So that's what's taking place here on your campus. Um, so it's a great opportunity to find out more about Black History Month, um, and the resources are pretty readily available. So that's all the time that we have here for Friday Night Insight. Stay, well, check out Friday Night Insight every Friday uh, from 7 to 8 p.m., where we'll have uh, some great news um, and articles coming your way. Um, so coming up next here on Your Impact, we've got Flashback here on 88.9 FM.
Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.